this lesson series looking at uh, the story of the Bible, all the way from creation to revelation. And uh, we are to a place today where it's kind of the second part of the life of Abraham, which is where God is really getting serious and down to business when it comes to him fulfilling that promise that he made to the snake back in the garden when he said, I'm going to send a descendant of the woman's and You'll hurt him when you strike his heel, but in so doing, he will crush your head. And God comes to Abraham and basically says, Abraham, you're the guy. You're the guy through whom I will send that promised descendant who will set things right once and for all. And so last week's uh, first installment on Abraham, I called Take Another Step, because that's basically the life of faith that Abraham lived, right? It's like God would say, I want you to go somewhere, and he'd say, where? And God would say, I'll tell you when you get there, just take this next step. And Abraham's life is sort of a picture of that. God just keeps laying down steps, and for the most part, Abraham takes them when he's supposed to. He's not perfect, he makes some mistakes. We'll get into that a little bit today as we go along, but his default setting always comes back to this one specific way of looking at life. And that way of looking at life, I think, is described really well in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, where the Bible says that the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Now, I love that verse because it doesn't say that God is looking down at the earth trying to find people that are messing up, because how hard would that be really, right? We wouldn't have to look very far. It also doesn't say he's looking for people who are perfect, or it doesn't say he's looking for people who are strong or talented or good looking. It's like, if you're any of those things, that's great. But what God needs more than anything and what God can't work without is this fully committed heart that he is looking for. And when he finds that person, he pours his strength into them. Talk about that a lot here at Riverside, that God shares his power his strength, his wisdom, his knowledge, his very presence with people that are engaged in developing the character of his son and living lives fully committed to him. Because to pour his power into the life of somebody that isn't interested in becoming like his son would be a dangerous combination. And so God is looking for people who are willing to fully commit their hearts to him. I'll never forget when I was first getting started in my faith, uh, I, I had no idea why God would want to use me it's like, what good am I going to be to him? You know, I was trying to recover my life. I was like, I'm, I'm worthless to him. And so I remember I asked a preacher one time, I was like, why would God want to use me? And he said, because God's desperate. <laughs> and he really said that to me. And I was like, okay. He goes, no, seriously, very few people are willing to fully commit their hearts to him. And when he finds somebody that is, he pours his power into that person like nobody's business, like you wouldn't believe. And I was like, okay, if you say so. And if you want to talk about a model of somebody who is not perfect at this, and yet I've seen God's power working through my life in ways I never would have dreamed was possible, I, I, just, I still look back and I can't believe what God has been able to accomplish through me. And that's why I do what I do. I'll spend the rest of my life telling anybody that'll listen, if he can do it in me, he can do it in you. And it'll look different in your life, right? But he will pour his power into your life in ways you never dreamed was possible. And so 
Abraham is sort of this picture of a fully committed heart. When he messes up, he, re he reverts to his default setting. He says, oh, I blew it. Sorry, Lord. I'm back on the path. What's the next step? And that's all he's looking for. That's exactly what God is looking for from all of us. And so we looked last week at Abraham passed the location test, right? Where he's like, where am I going? And God says, I'm going to tell you when you get there. Just take this next step. He, he, he went through the timing test where he was saying, when? When are you going to do these things that you say you're going to do in, in my life? And God says, when the time is right. Now, today we get to the third and the fourth tests that Abraham went through. And the third one, I guess I would call the process test. And the question that surrounds this particular test is how? How are you going to do anything through my life? And like I said, I, I really struggled with this early on. And what I would try to do is I would try to be what I thought God was asking me to be. And what that usually meant is what I thought a, a, a man of God from the perspective of sort of the tradition that I grew up in was supposed to look like, right? Supposed to say the right thing, supposed to dress the right way. Obviously, I've lost that. Uh, I thought that I had to, uh, you know, I thought I had to do all these things. So I would pretend to be something that I wasn't. And what would happen over and over and over again is not only would I fail miserably, but I'd look pretty ridiculous in the process. Let's watch this. Who's the boy?
And that's what happens when I try to try to do whatever I think God is asking me to do instead of waiting on his timing. Now, one of the most subtle and yet important distinctions that you'll ever try to figure out in your life walking with God is when is he telling me to wait and when is he telling me to step out and do something? And it is, I mean, people that have been following Jesus all their lives still kind of come to that point. They're like, I'm trying to figure that out right now. Um, but the good thing is it's all about the journey. And even if you take a wrong step, as we see in Abraham's life, God can almost, it's like God can work better with when we take the wrong step for the right reason than when we refuse to move or take the wrong step for the wrong reason. And so you can have this trust that, that it's, everything's going to be okay. And no, even if you make a mistake, God can work through and with mistakes. And so at this point in Sarah and Abraham's lives, they're having a hard time seeing how God is going to accomplish what he said he's going to accomplish. He's going to, give, he's going to send a son that Sarah is going to have, and that through that son, he is going to bless the world. That's, that's God's promise. Abraham and Sarah's biological clocks are ticking. They're like, how is this going to happen? They try all kinds of crazy things to try to accomplish the will of God in their lives. We talked in detail about that last week. Don't have time to get into it this week. If you're curious, you can go back and watch that one online. But they try all this stuff, and God keeps coming back and saying, that was a mistake, but I'm still working with you. But I'm still going to do it the way that I said I was going to do it. I'm going to send the child and through Sarah and, and through him, all the world will be blessed. And so they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. And one day, when she's 90 years old, God shows up. Now, the way that he shows up is kind of crazy. Um, if you were with us last week, you know that when God comes to Abraham, it's always sort of in this mysterious and, and uh, sort of spiritually strange way. That, Like in Genesis 15, he shows up as a fire pot and a torch. And when he shows up, this dread sort of falls over Abraham, and he doesn't know. It's like he, he's, he's terrified. This time, God shows up. Three travelers come walking up to Abraham's tent, and they are so, they're so approachable. They're so ordinary that at first they don't even realize it's God. It's like Abraham just thinks they're visitors. Let me, let me, let me feed you guys. Sit down. I'm going to give you something to eat. Sarah's in the tent. She's working on the food. And these three guys sit down, and pretty soon it becomes obvious one of them is God. And so God says to Abraham, where's Sarah? Now, not because God doesn't know where Sarah is. He knows. But have you ever been in the next room, you hear your name from somebody that's talking in the room over, and suddenly you are very interested in that conversation, aren't you? And so Sarah is sitting there. She's listening to the conversation, right? And really, when God says to Abraham, where's Sarah? And he says, oh, she's in the tent. Um, from that moment on, really, this conversation is about Sarah. I always wondered, why does God change up the way that he comes to Abraham at this point? I think it's because this is the first time that, that Sarah's had an encounter with this God. And he's trying to be approachable. He's trying to be gentle with her. And so he says, I'm going to come back next year, Abraham. And when I do, Sarah will have had a son. And so Sarah's listening. She laughs. To herself. And this is what she says. How could a worn out woman like me enjoy such pleasure? 
especially when my master, my husband, was also so old. Now, the word that she uses there for worn out is not just, she's not just saying, I'm old, how is this going to happen? That word literally means worthless. That word means useless. Sarah has decided there is no point to her life anymore. It's obvious that God's not going to do what he said he's going to do. They've tried, you know, with her servant Hagar. They've had this baby named Ishmael. Anybody belong to this little dude right here? <laughs> oh, we got him right over there. All right. We got a winner. There we go. So when Sarah uses this word useless, she's really, she's really depressed. She is really down on herself. And I used to think that when God says to her, why did you laugh? That he was like shaking his finger in her face. That she was in big trouble. That's kind of what I thought. Which is interesting because Abraham laughs too. So I was always like, well, why does it matter? She, they both laughed. Why does she get sort of talked to and Abraham doesn't? Well, go home and read as many commentaries as you want. They almost universally agree. God is being incredibly gentle with Sarah and talking her down from the ledge. She's, she's thinking to herself, I'm worthless my life isn't worth living anymore. And this is what God says to her in Genesis 18, verse 13. He says, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can an old woman like me have a baby? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now I want to stop right there for just a second. Do you notice that when God replays what Sarah said, he doesn't include the useless part. He takes out the stuff that's negative. It's like, yeah, you're old. Yeah, that, that's, that's just a biological fact. But what we see and what we will continue to see over and over and over in these stories in the Old Testament and even when we get to the New Testament, God loves to do things that are so outrageous they are humanly impossible, right? I, I don't know how often I have sat down with people that are trying to prove their faith and what Christians will do is say, look how this event is actually naturally possible. How God could have done this, humanly speaking, naturally speaking. And, and I always think, well, maybe he did. But with this situation here, she's 90 years old. There, there's, there's, no, there's only one way this happens, that this woman has a baby. And that is if God does something wonderful. And as a matter of fact, that's what that word, when he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? What he literally is saying is, is there anything too wonderful for me? People will say, you believe that the Red Sea was parted and all these people walked across on dry land? I'll say, well, why not? And they'll say, how did that happen? I'll be like, is anything too wonderful? If, if he created this world, is anything too wonderful for him? I don't think so. And so I don't even argue with stuff about stuff like that anymore. I'm just like, how, how did it happen? How did it not happen if he's the creator, right? He does, the world does whatever he asks it to do, including a 90-year-old woman having a baby. And so God goes on. He says, I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she denied it, saying, I didn't laugh. But the Lord said, no, you did. You did laugh. See, I used, like I said, I used to think he was like, you did laugh. You know what I mean? And that, you know, I mean, obviously Sarah's going to be scared. God's trying to kind of play that down. But it's like now it's like I kind of see God's, you know, like a toddler, you know, standing there with ice cream all over their face. I didn't eat the ice cream. Yeah, yeah, you did. You know what I mean? It's like it, you almost can't, can't help yourself. You know what I mean? 
You think, and God's like God saying, you think I can't give you a baby? Just wait. Just wait. I'll be back next year. And when he comes back next year, everything is different. Genesis 21, 6 through 7. They've had the baby. Sarah declares, God has brought me laughter. Not just brought me laughter. He's changed her laughter. And she goes on. She says, all who hear about this will laugh with me. Who would have said that Abraham would have... That Sarah would nurse a baby, yet I have given Abraham a son in his old age. And the reason she says everybody will laugh with me is this is a ridiculous situation, right? There is no human way possible that this actually occurs. But God says, that's when I'm at my best. Or at least that's when it looks to everybody else like I'm at my best. When I'm getting ready to do something that nobody would have possibly imagined, that everybody's like, how is that possible? There's no way that's possible except for one way, and that is if God did it. If you were trying to figure out how God is going to do something in your life, and you're wondering, is maybe this is how he's going to do it. I think maybe he's asking me to do this. How do you know whether that's actually God asking you to do that or not? It, that, that's the how that God wants to work in your life. I was talking about this with Judy last night, and she's like, I think the way that you, that you try to kind of put it through this filter is you look at what you're thinking about doing and say, is this, does this sound like something God would say? You know, so this is an outrageous uh, way of looking at it, but it's like, God wants me to have more money, so maybe I should rob a bank. You know what I mean? Obviously, the, it's pretty obvious God wouldn't tell you to do that, right? But there are a lot of things that we do that we're like, I'm going to do this to make the how work out in my life. That when we step back and look at it, we're like, whoa, that was a ridiculous thing to think. Talk to people that you admire, that you respect, that are further ahead on this journey than you are. And talk to them about what you're thinking so that, you know, they can either say, yeah, that sounds good. Or else they can be like, whoa, dude, time out. You need to hold on a second. You need to talk to a lot more people before you go forward with this plan. So the how test, right? The process test. And then finally, the last test which is the trust test, which revolves around the question of why. Why why does God want me to do this? Why is this happening? Why did God let that happen? Why, why? We have so many of those questions, don't we? And one thing that we'll see as we go throughout this series is God very rarely answers that question. When we say why, he says, take the next step. And really, the question that he's asking us is, how much do you trust me? And the more that, that what you'll learn, if you looked at the story of Abraham, his tests become progressively harder. He does, God doesn't start out with this one that we're going to look at right now. God starts him off relatively small and then builds him up like a personal trainer, right? You don't just say, drop down and give me 100 to somebody that hasn't worked out, right? Because, I mean, maybe one push-up is going to be all that somebody is going to be able to get in. Personal trainer, a good one. We'll say, okay, we're going to push you just past your ability. And then you're going to rest. You'll be sore. You'll be exhausted. But then you'll be ready for, for more when that's done. God does the same thing with us. And when God comes to Abraham, Isaac has grown up. And in Genesis 22, verses 1 through 2, he says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied. Here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Now, we could spend all day talking about 
why God would ask Abraham to do this. We could talk all day about the, the cultural context of the ancient Near East and what was going on in that day and how infant sacrifice was sort of, it was a regular occurrence and, and what Abraham would have thought when God asked him to do this, which was probably vastly different than what most of us living in 21st century Western society would think. But nothing that I have ever learned as I have read and studied about this has ever made me think, oh, oh, that makes perfect sense why God would ask him to sacrifice his child. Even knowing, as I look at the story and I know how it ends, knowing God's not really going to make him do it, putting myself in Abraham's position, I'm like, how could he, how could he ask that of him? How could Abraham actually start to follow through with it? And what I'm getting ready to tell you right now, okay, <laughs> I very rarely do this, but I'm going to tell you right now, I don't know that I've ever found a commentary that agrees with what I'm about to tell you, okay? Um, so just take it with a grain of salt, okay? This is what I think, okay? I'm not, I'm not standing here going, this is the way that it was. But this is the way that I see it now when I read this story. I don't think Abraham really thought God was going to make him go through with it. Was he prepared to go through with it? Yeah, I think he probably was. But I think he was thinking so far beyond that that he wasn't even really prepping himself for, I'm going to have to plunge this knife into my son. Let's look. Just maybe, maybe you'll disagree with me. Maybe you'll agree. I don't know. But in Genesis 22, verse 5, when they get to the place that God told them to go, they get to this region of Moriah, which was a, a mountain range in southern Israel. They get there, and Abraham says, I'm going to take the boy. He says this to the, to the servants, Genesis 22, verse 5. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther, and we will worship there, and then we will come right back. Now, I mean, obviously, he's not going to tell his servants, you wait here, I'm going to go kill my son, and then I'll come back, right? He's not going to do that, um, you know, because, I mean, he's just not going to do that. But still, the fact that he's like, we will come back. Then he goes on. He's climbing the mountain with Isaac. Isaac's carrying the wood for the sacrifice. Abraham's got the knife. He's got the fire. They're climbing the hill, and Isaac starts to look around. Genesis 22, verses 7 through 8. Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. He doesn't even hesitate. God's going to provide the lamb. It's like he has no doubt. The question that God asks, how much do you trust me? Abraham's like, all the way. I don't have any doubts at this point in time. And they keep climbing. Now, I put myself in Abraham's place over and over and over growing up. Could I even would I even have gotten on the donkey and started heading for that region? I don't think so. But thankfully, God's never going to ask me to do this to kill my son, right? He's never going to ask you to do that either. This is a, a unique situation, and, and God's doing something that we'll get into here in just a second. I always put myself in Abraham's position. Have you ever thought about what Isaac is going through at this point? Because Isaac is growing up. Right? I always saw in picture books, he's like a little boy, right? That like, you know, Abraham's going to be like, come here, you know, he's going to wrap up his arms and throw him on the, on the altar, you know. That's what I always thought. 
But Isaac is a grown man at this point. Some, I mean, the Jewish tradition says he was as old as 37 years old at this point. But even if he wasn't that old, he's carrying the wood for the sacrifice on his own back. Have you ever thought about how much wood it would take to completely consume a lamb? That's a lot of wood. This is a strapping young man, okay? And I always thought that, well, the picture that I always had was sort of like this. Let's watch. stone cop thing, right? But you know, loosely. I used to not think much of Isaac. I just have to confess. There's not a lot about him. Of all the patriarchs in the Old Testament, he gets the less, least publicity of all of them, I guess you could say. And the only thing I really knew about him was uh, this story and kind of his parenting style, which we'll get into next week when we talk about his children, Jacob and Esau. And so I always thought, Isaac, you know, I don't know. I don't know anything about his faith. Now, when I read this story, I see this young man who has so much faith that he is willing to lay down on that altar because he trusts his father that much. And he trusts God every bit as much as Abraham does. And so Abraham raises the knife. And again, every movie I ever seen, he's like, you know, and maybe that's what was going on. Maybe that's what was going on. Okay. But it, to me, I'm reading it, it's almost like Abraham's like going, wait for it, wait for it. And would he have been willing to follow through? Yes, I believe he would have. In Hebrews, it says he believed God could raise the dead. So maybe he was thinking, yes, God will make me do it, and then he'll raise Isaac, and then the boy and I will be back. Maybe that's what he's thinking. 
But he gets that knife up to the point where I guess he was getting ready to go, go forward. And in Genesis 22, verse 11. Oh, it's verse 7. You were right, Kevin. <laughs> verse 7. Um, he says, the Bible says, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham answered, Yes. The angel said, Don't kill your son or hurt him in any way. Now I can see that you trust God and that you have not kept your son, your only son, from me. Now we've been looking for Jesus in this story of the Bible, um, especially this first part in the Old Testament, finding Jesus in the Old Testament. The, the one that says this to Abraham is the angel of the Lord. We will see that phrase come up several times as we go throughout the Old Testament. A lot of scholars think that whenever it talks about the angel of the Lord, it's talking about Jesus. And it kind of makes sense here because the angel of the Lord says, stop, don't hurt the boy. And then he says, now I can see you trust God. that You have not kept your son, your only son, from me. So somehow, the person that's speaking is the angel of the Lord. It's also God. And not only does Jesus sort of show up there, but when Abraham looks up, Genesis 22, verses 13 through 14. He looks up, saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram, sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. And to this day, people still use that name as a proverb. And they say, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Now here's, to me, this is amazing. This mountain that Isaac climbs, led by his father, is in the area of Moriah, which is where several years later they would build a city called Jerusalem. They would put the temple of God in the spot where they think this is, that this event occurred. On that mountain, Isaac climbs it, carrying on his back the wood for his own sacrifice. Years later, the child of the promise, right? Isaac is the child of the promise, little c, little p. Jesus is the child of the promise. And if you look at Mary's experience getting pregnant and Sarah's, other than their age, incredibly similar. As a matter of fact, Mary's, Mary's objection is, I'm not married. I've never been with a man. How am I going to have a child? And the angel says almost the same thing as God said to Sarah. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? She has a baby, the child of the promise. He grows up, and one day he climbs a mountain in almost exactly the same place, carrying on his back the wood for his own sacrifice. But on that day, there was no last-minute reprieve. There wasn't heaven stepping in and stopping that whole process. This time, the blade would fall. This time, the sun was destroyed, was cut off, and died. And I don't know where Abraham was while all of that was going on. But if he was up there with God watching this thing take place, what a sense of deja vu he must have had watching Jesus climb that hill and remembering back to that day with, with his son Isaac. And I don't know, I'm, I can't say this is what happened, but I kind of picture in my mind that when Jesus dies, Abraham turns to God and kind of switches around, Genesis 22, verse 12 where the Bible says, you remember in Genesis 22, 12, where God says, now I know you love me because you didn't withhold your son, your only son. I kind of picture Abraham after Jesus dies, looking at God and saying, now I know. 
now I know you love me because you didn't withhold your son, your only son, whom you love. You and I are probably never going to get the answer to the question, why? But what we do get the answer to and what the Bible is constantly telling us to do is when we're asking ourselves a question, not why, take our eyes off that question and put them on the cross and say, when you see that, you may not know why, but you'll know something else. Now I know. Now I know you love me. Having trouble trusting God? You keep your focus on his son, on that cross, and that'll shoot a gentleman into your soul. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your son and for the sacrifice that he made for, for us coming forward and for Abraham and Isaac going backwards. And we just ask, Lord, that as we ask our questions, as we take the steps that you put in front of us, and we don't understand how or why or where or when you're going to do whatever it is that you're going to do, Lord, help us to have the wisdom to take our eyes off of our own questions and to put them on that cross where your son is, where your son was, and where you proved to us beyond a shadow of a doubt how much you love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.